How we doing? It's a beautiful day today. The Lord has blessed us with a beautiful day. Uh, my name is Jesse. I, I serve as one of the elders here at uh, Long Grove Community Church. So thank you for coming out today. Um, let's just, uh, let's pray for the message here. Lord, uh, thank you for this opportunity that we can get together, that we can worship together as a family, as a body, uh, that we can direct our attention towards you, that we can slow down all the busyness and craziness that goes on in our life and during the week. Uh, I pray for the message today, Lord, that you would uh, use this broken vessel and, and speak to us, that you would feed your sheep and encourage us and embolden us to, to share the gospel and the good news about your Savior. It's in your Son's name we make these requests. Amen. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 through 21. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known to God about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave him thanks, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. I am not ashamed of the gospel. What is the gospel? Have you heard? It's the good news. Have you heard the good news? The good news, the gospel, in a, in a broad sense, um, it's all of Scripture kind of ties it in. You look at all of Scripture, the main narrative, this is God's narrative on his plan to reconcile, to redeem man to himself, and more specifically in the person of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, that is the person of Jesus Christ and what he did for us, his, his birth here on, on earth, his life, his sacrificial death, and most importantly, his resurrection from the dead. Because it is the power that God, it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. You see, not being ashamed of the gospel as the world would have us be. Why? We should not be ashamed because it holds the power of God to salvation. How could we be ashamed to deliver and share this gospel when it has that? There's nothing in this life that, that I can spend my time doing or you could spend your time doing that is going to be more important than getting the gospel of, of Jesus Christ, than accepting him in our lives and sharing that with other people. This is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For the Jew and the Gentile, this is, this is open to everyone on earth. This is all of humanity, although it did start in the Jewish faith or Jewish religion, and now it is for all mankind. 
For in the gospel, Jesus' story, the righteousness of God is revealed. Jesus, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is not something that we earn or we buy, and it can only be attained by faith in Christ, who is our righteousness. We, look, we see in Galatians 3.11, it says, Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God. Relying on the law, my, my good deeds and bad deeds, right? We've all heard this, where I, I'm hoping I get through life, and at the end, my ledger card shows that I did a lot of good and less bad, and that by that law, I'm going to be justified and I'm going to make it. This here says, no, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. This is not anything we can do. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot reconcile ourselves to God through some action in any way. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Okay? So we understand that this the salvation... It's not something we earn. It's not something we do to gain, and it's certainly not something we can buy. We talk about how to live by faith, how to live by faith. And uh, this is something I would say. Living by faith means living in a way that shows we are confident or that we confidently believe in God's promises. Living by faith means living in a way that shows we confidently believe in God's promises. It means we don't just read the passages of the Bible for comfort and reassurance, and, and it does provide that, doesn't it? Absolutely. But that we trust this word enough, that we, we believe on what this says enough to actually change our daily decisions, walking by faith, changing our decisions at work, at school, in our relationships, and doing our best by the power of the Holy Spirit to suppress the flesh, to suppress our, our sinful nature, and to be actionable in a godly lifestyle. Actionable in a godly lifestyle. It means agreeing with what God has determined is right and wrong. We see a problem with that in the world right now, don't we? It's agreeing with what God has determined is right and wrong behavior in our lives, and making decisions to follow those standards, and trusting and having the faith that if we follow those standards and we set our, li our life to follow Christ, that the outcome will in fact put our lives in His will. God's will be done. I'm certainly guilty of this where I've, I've sat and I've prayed in the morning. I said, Lord, Your will be done in my life, and then I go about my day just as I had planned anyhow. That wouldn't be living by the faith. It is changing the decisions based on this. And it's also relying on the grace and the mercy of God when we fail to live by faith. Amen for that? Yeah. Um, a little bit on, on sharing the gospel, right? We're talking about not being ashamed and bringing it up. And I, I would admit to you there are people in my life that it's, it's, it's a difficult subject to approach with them. Uh, sometimes it's a lot easier to share the gospel with a stranger than it is a closer family member or somebody where that relationship has been strained in the past because of it. But um, I just wanted to give you a couple of things that I have found help move 
earthly conversations into a direction that will lead us to talking about Christ and talking about the gospel. A few places, I, I, it's kind of easy pickings to, to, to make these conversations switch. Funerals are huge. If you've ever been to a funeral, you find people are a little bit more open to talking about what the future may hold when the day comes and we may be lying there in the casket. So somebody that maybe you haven't been able to approach that subject, I find it's there. Weddings is another one, especially when there's a, a religion or a faith-based wedding going on. And I find this question just to be an easy one. I've not had anyone punch me yet for asking them this. And I said, do you follow any faith or particular re religion in your life? Just a nice, easy question. Do you, do you follow any faith or religion in your life? And a lot of times I'll follow that up depending on how they answer with, did your parents follow the same faith or, or did they or are they following the same faith? And it, I do this because it's important when we, we witness to someone or we share the gospel that we find out where they are. Sometimes it's easy to kind of come in and, and just you've got your predetermined set of how you're going to run through your Roman road or whatever it might be. But it's important to stop for a moment and find out where this person is in their spirituality or perhaps lack of it. So this is an important thing. And I just wrote down a couple here that I found to be common. And you've run into them, I'm sure, yourself. One is the, the parent pleaser where perhaps they're Catholic, but they just kind of were born into it. They're, they're, they're not really connected to the faith. They're not connected to the religion, but they didn't want to disappoint their parents, so they make sure to show up on Christmas. They make sure to show up on Easter and go through the motions, but there's really no connection. It's just, this is, I'm that, I'm Jewish because that's what my parents are, so that's what I am, but it's, it's not individual. So you might find some folks that are in that particular spot. Uh, parents plus faith is another one that I find, where you, you're a Christian, your parents were Christian, but you're not a Christian because your parents were. At some point in our lives, you came to the point where you owned those beliefs yourself. You decided to believe and call on the name of Jesus, and that is now your faith. Yes, your parents are Christians as well, but that has, that's not why you are. You are because you have personally made that commitment to Christ. So that's a parents plus faith. A faith, faith first, where perhaps you were the first one in your family to find the gospel. Like my wife was that way. She's the first born-again Christian in her family. And sometimes that can come with some difficulties, can't it? I know we've had that in the church. Sometimes that can create problems in the family, especially if you're leaving one faith and going into Christianity. That's not always met with a welcome, open arms. And that can be very difficult. But a first faith. Atheists, probably the toughest one I have in understanding. You know, it's generally, they, they claim intellect, that, that the gospel is foolish, that the, this Jesus stuff is, is silly for us to believe in it. We're the confused ones and we're the fool. They have this intellect that we don't have. And almost always when I press into those conversations, I find the root is the fact that they just don't want to believe there is a God out there that they would answer to. They want to be God themselves. I am the one in control of my life, and I certainly don't agree with the idea that there's some almighty God who's going to judge me for my actions. And it's almost always rooted more in that than it is in the actual intellect, because you take a look around. Another one, I would say just another one with atheists that I, I, I it hurts a little bit more when I run into these folks, and probably you too, where they feel they've been disappointed by God. 
they lost a, a child or a family member or, or things didn't go the way they thought in life and they said there can't be a God because if there was a God, this type of stuff wouldn't happen on earth. And so they've renounced the idea that there is a God because they've been hurt or personally feel that God had not been there for them. So you may find folks at that place as well. Inner God, this one I, I don't know, I've, I find this a little bit more at least in my circles where it's just kind of this spiritual feeling. It's, it's this experienced base. Uh, generally, it's a very abstract description of what they believe in. It's this kind of all over. Um, and it usually boils down, and you see this in the mainstream now, it usually boils down to this. The purpose of life is that we all be happy and fulfilled. Have you heard this? This gospel, or this false gospel, I would say, rolling around a little bit more than we had before. I, I think this one is, is probably Satan's favorite. I, I say that because of the account in Genesis 3, 3, right? You got Adam and Eve, and you've got the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and that's the only command. Adam and Eve, you've got this whole utopia. This world was built for your pleasure and enjoyment and to enjoy walking with God, but just you can't mess with this one tree and Satan comes around, and as he's enticing them to disobey God, as he's enticing them to break God's law and bring sin into the world, one of the ways he did that is to say, you know, if you eat this tree, you're going to be like God. And, of course, that was a lie. Like God in the sense of knowing good and evil, but it, it indwelled us. It doesn't indwell God. And so I, I do find that interesting that his first way of bringing man away from God. And you think about this, how did Satan get himself in the predicament, right? Lucifer is the most beautiful creation, most intelligent and powerful being that God had ever created. And rather than thanking God and enjoying that wonderful creation that he was, he said what? He said, I want the throne. I want to be God now. And isn't it funny that then he comes down to the Garden of Eden, he says, don't you want to be God too? I think that's one of his favorite, and that's what we're seeing now, that, that God is within us, and we have it in our own power to save ourselves, and it's, it's another lie. It's the lie that I would call that deception 101 if I could, because that's been around. Something I hear often is, how can you really know God, right? You got these people, well, if, if he was here and if I saw him, then I would believe. Don't buy that either. The Bible is very clear. Jesus himself will come, and there will be a rise up to fight against him. He's going to be here, and people are going to reject him. Don't, don't fall into that too much where if he would just show up, people would believe that's not true. But how can we know an invisible God? And I would agree with that statement, and how can you know God, unless God had chose to reveal himself to us as physical beings. We cannot get to where he is. What it takes is it takes God revealing himself to us, and he has done that. When we observe creation itself, you look at the complexity that comes that makes this universe work, you've got to come to the conclusion that there is a designer. You've got to come to the conclusion there is a designer. We look at Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. We look around. Look at this. I mean, it's beautiful today. This is beautiful. And you look around, and the way and the order in which this works. Ordered systems and structures, they don't just happen spontaneously. We never observe orderliness occurring by accident without an intelligent cause to direct the order. 
No amount of power or energy is enough to bring order out of chaos. It just, it, as I said, the only way that you, you deny the creation of this is this sheer desire to not want to believe there is something greater than yourself. It's, it's what it boils down to. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. God is a God of order, not chaos. For those of you that like things nice and tidy, you like your homes in order, that's not one of my best qualities, but that's a godly thing. Good for you. That's, that's fantastic. God is a God of order. Genesis 1.26, again, we say we can look around. How can we know God? Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. We, mankind, were made in God's likeness. If you will, looking at creation and looking at the creation of man, it's, it's kind of like you see a painting and you, you can know something about the artist based on the paintings. And you look around at creation and it points to our God. We can also know God through his revealed written word. The books of the Bible. In this book, God has given us instruction here for living. Understanding our relationship to him. It's here. And the world, explaining why the world is the way that it is. Why do babies die and why do bad things happen to good people? All the answers are contained in this book. Now, that might not be all the answers that we want answers to, but everything God has chosen to reveal to us is here. If you want to know God, this is where it is. And I would say, sometimes it's tempting to say, God, what do you want me to do with my life? Show me. And you wait for that burning bush to light up, right? You wait for that lightning to come down or something drastic to happen. And, the, and, I, and I'm not saying those miracles couldn't happen, but that, that's not it. You say, God, what, what would you have for my life? Show me what direction you want to do. And then you start reading this, and you will find that that direction is given to you here. This will come alive in your hands, in your heart, and in your mind. You will find it here. You're unlikely to find a burning bush to tell you where to go. I scratched my page. Let me get back down here. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for good training in what? In righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. He gave us the manual. I was uh, fortunate to grow up in a, in a Christian home. Uh, my mother, a strong woman of God to this day, my father who was a pastor, he was a pastor and teacher. 
He was my, my go-to with spiritual questions when I would grow up. If I would be witnessing to somebody, maybe at work or in school, and they would give me some theological or spiritual question, I'd get on that phone and say, Dad, how about this? And he would rattle it off, and I would go, and I'd have my answer for that person. When my father died, there was a void. There was a void. I, all of a sudden, I couldn't make that call anymore. He died in March of 2008. It wasn't until October of 2009, there was a good gap there, that I felt the Holy Spirit impress upon me and gave me the unquestionable task of reading this Bible. You see, the source didn't die with my father. It remained here. It's here for me and it's here for you. This is our source for those answers. It's all here. We have to learn to read it. And there's so many resources. We really, we're without excuse to be a believer and to be a Christian that put our faith in God and to not open this up and attempt to learn and read and grow. There's really no excuse. There's so many resources right now. And we that, that are reading this, those that have been believers for a while, it's our job to help and like what we're doing here, des describing and discussing what it contains, but also in our private lives outside of Sunday, right? We look at Acts 30, 30 through uh, Acts 8, 30 through 35. Then Philip ran up to the chariot, and he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of Scripture that the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. We are here to help each other, not just here, but in our lives outside of Sunday service. Learn it so you can explain it. As sitting under my father's teaching as, as a child, I, I knew God, I accepted God, but there was a difference. I was listening so I could be fed. I was listening so I could learn, but the intention needs to change to not just listen for ourselves, but listen so we can give account, we can explain, and we can lead others as well. This should be our goal. We can know God through the person of Jesus Christ, who is, in fact, God himself. This is also contained in the Bible. In fact, the entire Bible surrounds this individual, the Son of God, in human form. The Bible gives us detailed accounts of many encounters and teachings of Jesus, and that gives us a clear picture of who God is. By knowing Jesus, we know God. John 14, 8 through 10. Philip, he says, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, 
Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. To know Jesus is to know God, and his account is contained here. This church aims to be a, a church that expounds on the full, written, revealed word of God. And we do not want to conform to the desires of this world who would love to dilute it and pick and choose what we like about this in here, what we don't like. We kind of leave that out and we, we hold on to the good stuff and that'll, that'll pack the house. Not going to happen here. A little bit about um, God here. God is just, okay? God is just. What he does, what he decides, and what he allows it must be righteous. He is holy. That is he, is, he is separate from sin. He does not change. God is love. That's the more popular topic you hear, isn't it? God is love, and God is love. And God hates sin. Yes, God hates. Not as popular. In fact, there's an appointed day written in this book, in which the wrath of God will be revealed among men for our sinful transgressions. And only those who are washed in the blood of Jesus Christ will escape this wrath. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Psalm 11.5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Psalm 5.5, 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. That hate of sin and our unrepentant hearts is why the wrath is to come. Let's take a moment to just understand the wrath, what that means, the wrath of God. This is not an anger like your anger or my anger. It's not an outburst or an uncontrolled emotion. This isn't some, some issue on that side. An, an example I would give you uh, my, when, my, when I would disobey, okay, my father, uh, and I would disobey often as a child. I'll just go ahead and say it there. So my father, um, when he would discipline me or spank me, or even if he was very angry, he wouldn't do it on the spot, okay? He would, he would get upset and he'd be angry and maybe he would send me to the room and I don't know, he'd go off for a walk or pray or, or whatever it might be. Um, all I know is that from the time that he, he proclaimed judgment, son, you had done something wrong and you were going to be spanked because of that, go to your room. And then he would go and pray or relax or get himself to a place where he wasn't upset. I know that that amount of time till he came back was an eternity. I do, I do know that. You know, like every time you hear a door slam, ooh, is that it? You know, I think he's going to be there. I, I know that much. But he never, never disciplined me in his anger. I did notice that very early on, that even if my father would be angry, he, he did not do it in anger. Often, as my, my father, as he would be carrying out the judgment, if you will, 
for my wrongdoing, he would have tears in his eyes. And I, I remember as a child, I'd think to myself, like, what are you crying for? You know, I'm sitting here getting a whooping. What's, what do you got to be worried about? <laughs> and uh, only as a father now do I, I understand some of that pain of disciplining a child. We are to discipline our children. In the same way, we're God's children. And we are either adopted, adopted as righteous sons through the blood of Jesus Christ, or we among the wicked who've rejected that authority. This is it. God takes no pleasure in damning people. His desire is that all could be saved in turn from unrighteousness. 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus is the truth. But make no mistake, God is not wrath by nature. He's love by nature. And his love for us is who he is. The wrath that is to come on our sin, it's been provoked. The wrath that is to come has been provoked. It was not the original intention for us to be disobedient and separated from God. And it's not just the disobedience that happened in the garden. It's our continuous disobedience that is provoking this wrath. Another uh, example here when I was younger, and my brother over here, he's three years younger than I am, and uh, he always would kind of challenge me to be tougher. You know, I was the older brother, and he'd, we used to wrestle a lot. And it, it wasn't uncommon. I'd be sitting on a Saturday morning, maybe eating my Cheerios, watching the G.I. Joe or the cartoons or something like that, and he would come and stand directly in front of me to block my view from the TV, and I'm just sitting there. And he would stand there and say, hey, could, could you move? I'm watching it. And next thing you know, he would take his hand and he'd psh, give me a little slap on the face. I said, man, better back up. Psh, another little slap on the face. And he would continue to do this. He would provoke me <laughs> until I would get up in a rage. I'd beat him down. I would take off his tube sock and make him eat it. That's how this went down. And then he would go upstairs and start doing push-ups, preparing for the next time. Provoked wrath. God is, is not taking delight in that. We are provoking his wrath through our sin. Okay? Our sin is a constant disregard for the gifts of God and his will in our lives. We have an outright objection, especially this world, to his universal sovereignty and we are all guilty of doing that. We're all guilty of doing so. Here is a, uh, a stark picture of how God views, views and deals with sin among his people, how he hates sin. Deuteronomy 22, 13 through 21. If a man takes a wife and after sleeping with her, dislikes her, and slanders her, and gives her a bad name, saying, I married this woman, but when I approached her, I did not find proof of her virginity. Then the young woman's father and mother shall bring to the town elders at the gate proof that she was a virgin. 
Her father will say to the elders, I gave my daughter in marriage to this man, but he dislikes her. And now he has slandered her and said, I did not find your daughter to be a virgin, but here is proof of my daughter's virginity. Then the parents shall display the cloth before the elders of the town, and the elders shall take the man and punish him. And they shall fine him a hundred shekels of silver, give them to the young woman's father, because this man has given the Israelite virgin a bad name. She shall continue to be his wife, and he must not divorce her as long as he lives. If, however, the charge is true. If, however, the charge is true, and she had indeed sinned. And no proof of the young woman's virginity can be found. Then she shall be brought to the door of her father's house, and there the men of her town shall stone her to death. She has done an outrageous thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still in her father's house. You must purge the evil from among you. It was a stark picture indeed. Imagine a young girl brought to the doorstep of her home. To imagine the men of this town having to carry this out, many of which I'm sure saw this child grow. Be stoned in front of her home, with her family and siblings, certainly in, in earshot, hearing what is happening. This is a result of sin. God and sin do not coexist. And this is how God purges sin. This is how he views it. You see, sin must be punished or God would not be just. What, what fear or what, what, command, what authority would a parent have when they lay rules in their household and then the children just run all crazy outside of those rules and there's no discipline? They wouldn't even be... They, God doesn't have that ability to speak something and then go against it. He is always true and he is always consistent. The penalty for sin is death. First physical death, then spiritual death which means an eternity separated from the love, mercy, and grace of God. But, isn't that it? That's why you never get up and leave mid-service, because you're going to leave downtrodden. <laughs> you wait because the story gets better. But God created a plan to redeem us, to save us from that penalty of sin, and to save us from the wrath that is to come with it. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself, that is Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Got a nice little picture of that there. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Guess what? By his wounds you have been healed. And John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life and escape the wrath to come and the punishment for sin. The sin debt that we owed God has been paid off. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of the life handed down to you from your ancestors, but what redeemed us? But with the precious blood 
of Christ. The lamb that was without blemish or defect has paid for the sin that must be punished. He took it on. The blood of Christ Christ and faith in him not only paid for all your sins, but can seal you to God himself, that we could enjoy that grace, mercy, and love for all eternity. Let's look at this grace and forgiveness that the Son of God brings into this world. John 8, 3 through 11, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Got an idea where this is supposed to go now, right? We already covered that. They brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? And they were using this as a question, this question as a trap, in order to have basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started writing in the ground with his finger. And they kept pressing him. They kept questioning him. And he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And he went and stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. The Son of God offers mercy, grace, and redemption through faith in him. This offer, though, has an expiration date. At the end of your life, at the end of our life, the offer is off the table. You have until that last breath to receive and accept God's words as true. Have you accepted that offer? Have you placed your faith in his death and resurrection? Have you decided to walk by faith and do you rely on the grace of and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to cover you when you stumble. Don't leave here today without calling on his name that we might be spared from the wrath to come. Jesus indeed saves. Let him save you. Let's pray. Lord God, Again, we just praise you. We thank you for your revealed word. We thank you for sending your son to die in our place, Lord. We sinners that cannot save ourselves and have no hope without that sacrifice. Lord, I just ask that you renew us. Those of us that have placed our faith into you, Lord, strengthen us. Give us confidence through this word the education that we get through your written word, Lord. Help it to embolden us that we make haste to share this gospel, that we not just be satisfied to sit on your salvation and on your, your death and resurrection and your, our faith in you has sealed us, but that that not be enough, 
that we also take an active role in proclaiming that gospel to our friends, to our family, to people that you have put in our lives, and you've brought us to that point to do exactly that. Give us confidence, Lord. And to those here who perhaps still have that hole in their heart, to those that are still searching and looking for the answers, to those that are finding everything they put their efforts towards to be broken and empty and every attempt to reach you in and of themselves has failed. Lord, draw them near to you today. Those that are present, those that are online, Lord, those that may hear this message and your message to come, help us to continue to deliver this to this generation and the next. Help those who are lost and don't know you. Open their hearts and put us in the right place that we might be your hands and feet and lead others to that salvation, that wonderful good news that your Son has come to save us from the wrath to come. We bring these requests in your Son's name and through his precious blood. Amen.